Hi, my name is Ellie Winfrey. I'm a high school senior, and I'll be reading the passage today from 1 Samuel 1 and 2. There was a certain man whose name was Elkanah. He had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Penina and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Her husband Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Once, when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. Then she went on her way and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning, they arose and worshipped before the Lord, and then went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, Because I asked the Lord for him. Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord. There was no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Do not keep talking so proudly, or let your mouth speak such arrogance. For the Lord is a God who knows, and by him deeds are weighed. The bows of the warriors are broken, and those who stumbled are armed with strength. Those who were full hire themselves out for food, but those who were hungry are hungry no more. She who is barren has borne seven children, but she who has had many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful servants, but the wicked will be silenced in the place of the darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn from his anointed. Man, thank you, Ellie. So good morning. Uh, my name is Drew, one of the pastors here uh, at Redeemer City Church. It's good to see you. I hope you're uh, having a great holiday season so far. I have a sense. Uh, I woke up this morning feeling like, okay, uh, it feels like Monday. Tomorrow, it just starts to fast forward all the way to Christmas for us anyway. I don't know if that's uh, for you too, uh, but I hope you can find some time to rest and, and enjoy yourself. We are in the middle of a series through these weeks leading up to Christmas, looking at a theme that 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 is really woven throughout the entire Bible, and it's this, that any time God starts a new chapter in the story of salvation, it almost always begins with a barren woman. It almost always begins with a barren woman, uh, and it's an interesting thing. I mean, it's so, it's so common that, you know, eventually you get 
far enough along in your reading of the Bible and you say something is really happening here. Something's really important here. This is, this is something significant. And so when you are reading the Bible, you come across a statement like the one we have here in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 2, where we're told twice um, by way of emphasis that Hannah had no children and then, and then later that the Lord had closed her womb. Uh, you're, you're supposed to be conditioned when you come across those sorts of sentences to think something like this. Oh, God's about to do something really big. I wonder, I wonder what comes next. Which, of course, means that in your own life, as you live before the face of the Lord, when you're confronted by scarcity and need in yourself or in your circumstances, you shouldn't panic. Instead, you should do the same thing. You should have a moment where you say, oh boy, I'm weak. Isn't that great? God must be about to do something really big. I wonder what comes next. And so the question we've been asking to meditate upon as we've been you know, looking at these stories is uh, something like this. Where are you this morning as you came here the most faint? What set of circumstances is making you or making it hard for you to hold on to joy or even maybe just hard for you to get up in the morning? Because what the argument we're trying to make is this, is that that, that however you answer that question, that place, that set of circumstances is the most likely place for God to show up in your life and do something. These stories are stories of reversal. They're stories of barren wombs suddenly stirring with life. Stories where cynicism and doubt are eclipsed by hope, where disgrace and shame give way to boundless joy. That's Hannah's story. And that's our Advent theme for this week, joy. How can we be a people of joy in the middle of a life that can be really, really hard at times and full of disappointment and loss and sadness and pain? See, what we learn here, what we learn about God here in this text is cause to never give in to hopelessness and despair. There's always reason. There's always reason for joy, but we have to fight for it. And so we want to take a look at Hannah's story here because her story is a lesson in, in how to live with joy. And we're going to see, again, very much like last week, and it'll be the same next week and as we go forward in this, we want to see how there's a, there's a reversal, there's a transformation that takes place in the life of this, of this woman that's very profound. She begins, her experience at the very beginning of our story is with, with disgrace and shame, but something happens as the story goes along. Her disgrace and her shame are transformed into joy as she starts to sing in chapter 2, and we want to ask, well, how can that same thing happen to us, and how specifically does Christmas and what... Christmas reveals, and how Christmas reveals the reality of the grace of God. How does Christmas grace transform our shame into joy as well, like they did Hannah's? Because it's interesting, it's really, her joy is really connected to Christmas. And I hope to show you that. So let's, let's walk through this together, can we? First, let's talk about Hannah's shame. This is our theme uh, for this morning. And so, before we get into the text even, we need to explain a little bit what we mean by shame. And by shame, I mean to use a phrase from the Bible, I mean something like a condemning heart. First John 3, chapter 3, verse 20, talks about uh, the way our hearts uh, can condemn us at times. Anybody ever experienced that? Good, just me. That's, that's good. I'm all alone. Uh, a condemning heart. 
Uh, in Genesis, the man and the woman at the very beginning of the Bible story were naked and they had no shame. That's Genesis 2.25. Then they sin in chapter 3, and the next thing we're told on the other side of their sin is that their eyes were open and they, and they knew that they were naked. Now, that is a brilliant piece of psychology. Because what the text says there is that there was a time where they were naked and they didn't know they were naked. Have you ever been naked and not known you were naked? I didn't think so. <laughs> there was a time where they were naked and didn't even know they were naked. And then something happened. Their eyes were open and they became aware of their nakedness. In other words, I think what the, what the Bible is trying to teach us there is they got a sense that there was something wrong with their nakedness. And that's how I would define shame. Shame is the experience of being naked and feeling wrong. It is the, it's the experience of vulnerability coupled with the feeling of condemnation. Right? Vulnerability, which, which life brings us to places of vulnerability. If you want to, have you ever seen, you remember the old Southwest commercials, Want to Get Away, those Want to Get Away commercials where somebody does something unbelievably stupid? Want to get away? Yes, please, anything. You send, you send the, you know, the, the email scam out to the entire office and everybody's computer just goes up in flames. Want to get away? You know, life brings us to these places of vulnerability. What happens when we experience vulnerability? If, if shame, if, if we're rooted in shame, then those, then those moments of vulnerability come with the feelings of condemnation. It's different from guilt. Guilt Guilt is the acknowledgement that in some specific way I failed. I failed in a specific task. I've done something wrong. I need to be held accountable for that wrong. Shame is way more destructive because in shame, it's this floating sense of condemnation. And what happens is, is it's not connected to a specific thing. So it's just this, I, I feel wrong. Who I am. You know, what I'm like. How I am. That's wrong. But it's not attached to anything specific. I mean, in the text, Hannah, Hannah hasn't done anything wrong. You understand that, right? She's done nothing wrong. She's not guilty of anything. But she feels disgrace. She feels shame. So it's important to make that distinction. Theologically, we're talking about righteousness again, okay? We can't get away from this idea. Righteousness. Shame is the emotional response to losing your righteousness. Our catechism teaches that sin, and this is an important thing to remember, sin is not just something you do. It's not bad things we do. Sin is a state of being. And part of that state of being is the loss of what our theologies call original righteousness. Again, that first man, the first man and the first woman, they possessed a rightness that we no longer have. They were so right. They were so right. I mean, right with God, right with one another, right inside of themselves, just so right in every way that they were naked and didn't even know it. There was no sense of self-consciousness or embarrassment in anything. So they experienced vulnerability, but it didn't come with an with a, with a emotional reaction of, of condemnation. They experienced this wonderful thing. Vulnerability and acceptance. Can you imagine that? Self-acceptance, but more importantly, acceptance and love from their creator. I mean, can you, can you even like, I see some of you going kind of like this, like that, what is that? And yeah, it's so foreign to our experience. All of it has been lost. We, because of sin's influence in the world, because of being born into a state of sin, we, we live with a profound sense of wrongness, but 
the wrongness that we experience isn't an issue of sexual identity or biological function. There is a right, there is no rightness unless we are right with our maker. Our wrongness comes from being wrongly related to the one who's created us. It's a theological problem and it requires a theological answer. And I want us to remember that as we look at Hannah's story because that's really important that we not get bogged down into the circumstances of Hannah's life. So let's, let's look at the text. Meet Hannah, okay, this lady, this wonderful lady of faith. In order to understand her shame, you have to understand a bit about the cultural expectations of her day. Now, we've, uh, Ashley and I, we've walked through infertility uh, on both sides of our family and with many others, and there's some even in our church who are struggling with that, and, and I, I just, they, it's one of the, I don't, I'm, I'm a prayer flunky, Bob, but one of the things that I've been able to figure out how to pray consistently for is people that I know who are struggling with wanting children and, and God not having given them, because, because I know the pain of that, and we know it personally, the, first, the firsthand experience of pain and confusion that comes from not being able to have children. And, and so not to make light, not to make light but it, it, uh, of what people go through in our culture, but it is nothing compared to what Hannah experienced. Because in her culture, bearing children was, for the most part, the sum of a woman's value and worth. In the ancient world, women were not judged by their measurements. They were judged by the number of children they bore to their husbands. Big families were important, you understand. You'd have plenty of uh, help in the fields back when parents could actually command their children work. You'd have, you'd have a big group to fight off any, uh, any marauders who would come and try to steal or kill or whatever the case might be. You could, you could, you could win a fight. Lots of children meant wealth and status for the, the family. And so women who had lots of children were, were treated as heroes. And those who couldn't were often marginalized and maligned if they weren't divorced and just put out. Because they were seen of very little worth. So having children... Having lots of children was everything. Hannah had no children, so she had nothing. Now, our culture is very different, but in many ways very much the same. It's no longer children that are the ultimate thing. It's affluence, it's achievement, it's physical appearance. If you don't have those things, you're forced to live with an overwhelming sense of wrongness. See, it's not wrong to not have children. But if you listen to women who are struggling with infertility, even today, they feel wrong. They feel this deep sense of wrong. It doesn't make you right to have lots of money, and it doesn't make you wrong to be overweight, but our feelings of rightness and wrongness are often connected to where we rank in these categories that our culture or just small groups of friends assign value and worth and significance to. Again, this is about righteousness. Remember, we've talked about this word over and over again. This is works righteousness. Works righteousness. In other words, our culture assigns certain categories of righteousness that define right and wrong, good and bad for everybody. And then everybody gets a ranking. And don't look at me like that. You know how this works. You were in middle school once. Go back to middle school and remember those days or interview a middle schooler in our church Everybody knows in middle school, go to a lunchroom. Everybody knows who's a 10 and who's a 2. And now kids put all that stuff out there on social media so that those who are 2 know they're 2. And we wonder why depression and suicide among teenagers is skyrocketing. Shame. 
just this pervasive sense of shame. So, so some kids are left feeling a deep sense of rightness. Think about this. Simply because they're pretty or they're athletic or they're smart, and others with this deep sense of wrongness because they wear the wrong clothes or they're told they're stupid. Shame. And it's a really bad system, by the way. And the reason it's such a bad system is that even if you're right, it's always fragile. You lose it at any minute. Right? The standard's always changing. If looks are, you know, if looks are righteousness, then you're one episode of breaking out away from sliding down the rankings. Or you eventually get old. And then it's taken from you whether you want it to be gone or not. Now, the text shows what this, what this does to people, this sense of this way of living in the world, okay? So let's start with Hannah. And let's look, beginning in verse 6 with her. We want to see what, what's happened to her because this is the environment she's living in. So there, there's a particular word that's used to describe her state of mind. In verse 6, we're told she's irritated. Now, I point out the word there to you because it's the only time in the Bible where this particular word is used to describe somebody's interior life. It's a word that's used everywhere else in the scriptures to describe the raging of a storm. So Hannah has a stormy heart. She's a mix, she was a mix of all kinds of emotions. She was despondent. She was angry. She was confused. She was depressed. We're told in the text that she wouldn't eat. She was crying all the time. Okay, she's not functioning. That's the point. She had a pretty good life. Her husband loved her. There was a certain level of success and influence that the family had achieved. All of that's very clear from the, from the text. But it didn't matter. Internally, she's in the middle of a storm. She was full of self-pity, self-loathing. Maybe you are too. But one of the reasons, one of the main reasons why Hannah finds herself there is that Elkina has another wife, and her name is Penina. Uh, way to get that right, Ellie. That was great. Penina, Penina had children. We're not told how many. It doesn't matter. Penina was winning. Hannah was losing. You understand? Penina was winning, Hannah was losing, and both Penina and Hannah and everybody else knew it. And so Hannah's despondent and full of self-loathing. Penina, boastful and self-exalting, and we're told there in verse 6 that she used her success to provoke her rival Hannah. Now, in our parlance, she was a bully. She hated Hannah because even though she had given Elkanah children, he still loved Hannah more. Did you notice that little, that little bit there? Up in verse 4, when the family would go up to the feast, Elkanah would give Hannah a double portion of the sacrifice. So it's, it was his way of honoring her, of showing preference to her among his wives. Now, he loved her more than Penina is what, is what that's communicating. And that just didn't fit into Penina's worldview. She, in her mind, was the one deserving of greater honor. She was winning. She was the winner. Hannah was the loser. And so... She vindictively flaunted her superiority in an attempt to shame Hannah. She is self-righteous and mean. So you have Hannah, full of self-loathing, self-pity, and just, just falling apart. You have Penina, self-righteous and critical and provoking and mean. And so let's just stop for one second before we move any further and make a couple of observations because there's so much here. Man, so much here for the way that shame works itself out in the way that we relate to one another, Okay. Think about the family dynamics here for a minute, and let's think about our family dynamics. First, I want you to notice that an inferiority complex and a superiority complex are really the same thing. 
self-pity and self-righteousness share the same root. What is it? Self. Pride. Hannah is not the good guy and Penina the bad guy at this point. Self-pity, which she's in the throes of, is really, really ugly. It's sinful. And so the opposite of the ugliness of Penina's self-righteousness is not Hannah's self-loathing because that's ugly too. Its opposite is humility, self-forgetfulness, joy, peace, love for others. And here at the beginning of chapter 1, Hannah is not there yet. Secondly, notice also that for both of these women, their identity and their self-worth was based on a comparison with the other. So Hannah lived with an overwhelming, soul-crushing sense of wrongness because she compared herself to Penina. Penina lived with an inflated, soul-shriveling sense of rightness because she compared herself to Hannah. And that's the way shame works. And then finally, notice what it does to relationships. We're told in verse 6 very clearly that these two women, over the course of many years, in the, in the, in the midst of just the... Know, the way families can work, uh, they became rivals. It became a competition between the two of them. And the result was deep animosity and envy. Hannah, jealous of Penina's children. Penina, jealous of Elkanah's love for Hannah. And it just, it just, the family was start, starting to unravel. Do you see that? So two sides of the same coin that creates uh, comparison and competition uh, that results in envy and jealousy and all kinds of fracturing relationships. That's why we have to talk about these things. These are important. So here's my question to you. Are you more Hannah-like or are you more Penina-like? Self-pity and self-righteousness are symptoms of the same disease, shame. Shame is a profound, pervasive sense or fear of wrongness. And the Bible teaches that every person is born into the state of sin, which includes a sense of shame. So my question to you this morning is, as you try to make this text, speak to your own heart and figure out how to live out of it, what do you do with your shame? Where do you go to find rightness? Because if you turn to yourself, you'll end up either like Hannah or like Penina. If you turn to your own goodness or your own strength and you fail, then you'll end up like Hannah, full of self-pity and depressed. If you turn to your own strength and your own resources and you succeed, then in some way, one way or the other, you'll end up like Penina, self-righteous and threatened by every potential rival. But here's what I want you to see. Neither, neither is the way to joy. Neither is the way to joy. So that's our second point. Let's see this transformation that happens in Hannah then, because you see the opposite of shame is joy. And we could use other words, happiness, peace, contentment. But Hannah's story is a lesson in joy. Something happened to her, and it can happen to you and I too. At the beginning here in chapter 1, she's overwhelmed with sorrow. She wouldn't eat. She's in full-blown depression. But by the end in chapter 2, she was singing. What happened? Well, I know, I know what you're going to say. Well, she got what she wanted, and it's easy to be happy when you get a new set of circumstances. And I want to show you that that wasn't it at all. It was something much more profound. It wasn't a change in her circumstances. It was a change in her theology. It was a change in her understanding and her relationship with, with God that really, was, that really was the difference. Now, the turning point come, came in, in verse 8. So look there. I want you to see chapter 1, verse 8. You can miss it in the translation, but in the original language, it's significant. 
the family's having dinner, and then it says in verse 8, Hannah stood up. She kind of got up in the middle of dinner. My kids do this all the time. I'm uh, sure your kids do too, right? Or I do this all the time, actually, I should say. I'm the, I'm the worst culprit in my family. We'll be having dinner right in the middle of a, rela- of a conversation. Boom, I get up. And Ashley's looking, where, where are you going? Like, and the kids, and then the kid, you know. Have you ever had that experience? What happened? Something happened. Where'd you go? Something happened in Hannah. She's in the middle of this conversation, you know, this dinner time, and she just gets up. It's a specific word. It means she had been thinking about something, and she came to a resolution of some kind that she knew there was an action she had to take. There was something decisive that she had to do. And we're told that she got up from the family dinner. She went to, um, to the place of worship there, and she found the priest, and she began to talk to him and, and went to the altar there and began to pour out her soul and her soul's desires to the Lord. She, she began to pray. She, she didn't answer Penina's taunts in verse 7. Elkanah comes and asks her a question. Why are you so sad? Isn't my love enough for you in verse 8? She didn't answer him either. She just abruptly turned away from them both as if to say, you know what? I'm not going to play this game anymore. There's got to be something that changes in me. And she turned to God. She went to the Lord and poured out her soul before the Lord. And that's when things began to change for her. Now pay attention to the order of things in, in chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. It says, as she began to pray, she took her shame and her sadness to the Lord. Something significant began to happen in that time of prayer. Because the next thing we're told, go down to verse 18, I want you to see. She went away from this time of prayer and her conversation with the priest, and she ate something, and her face was no longer sad. And she left, she went back home, and then we're told in verse 20 that God remembered her, and she became pregnant. Now, here's my question. as you, Because this is really important. You've got to look at the text and, and ask this question. Which came first? Her peace or her pregnancy, which came first? It's important. Notice it doesn't say she prayed, got hurt, and she got pregnant, and then she was no longer sad. What does it say? It says she prayed, she found peace, and then she got pregnant. She got joy before she got the child. Her joy was a joy that was independent of her circumstances. It was something inside that had nothing to do with what, with what was happening on the outside. And that is what Christianity makes possible. What, what we believe, there's a supernatural joy that, that, that God offers that is the strength, the strength of the Lord, that is independent of your circumstances. It's such a gift. I mean, our culture has become so cynical of happiness. More and more, Hollywood elites are turning to Eastern religions like Buddhism, which is all about detachment, right? And so what, what, what the reason for that is the way we believe now to find happiness is to not need to be happy. That's the only way to find happiness is if you can figure out how to not need it. If you can just figure out how to detach yourself from everything in life, then you'll be okay. If you don't expect it, then you won't be disappointed. But Christianity says, no, no, no. There is a joy possible that is disconnected from all of the pain and the sadness of life not because you're emotionally disconnected, but because it doesn't have anything to do with what's going on in your life. So whether it's a good day or a bad day, you can still feel joyful because it's not dependent upon your circumstances. Hannah got happy without a child before she got the happiness of having a child. What the world calls happiness, unlike what Christianity calls joy, is something like this. And this, is, this just, ugh, just got all over me this week because it's so me. Happiness can be almost exclusively defined as getting control of your life so that you can keep your circumstances favorable. 
The pursuit of happiness in American culture is the pursuit of strategies for getting control of your life and having enough control over your life that you can make sure all of your circumstances are always the way you want them to be. Do a Google search this afternoon of just the word happiness. Go to happiness.com. There is such a thing. Happiness.com. Isn't that where you would go to find out what happiness? Because, I mean, everything on the Internet is honest. Here's what you'll find. The top five components for happiness. You ready? Number one, get the basics. Food, shelter, safety. Two, get enough sleep. And all the parents of young children said, amen. Three, have relationships that matter to you. Four, take compassionate care of others and yourself. And five, have work that interests and engages you, right? You need all five of those things. You can't be happy without those five things. That's what, that's what it says there. But do you realize, do you realize, sounds great, right? But do you realize how ludicrous that is? Because most people in the world... And most people throughout history have never had any of that. So what do you do about people in the world today who can never get enough of the basic necessities? What do you do about, I mean, how, what percentage of people, even in our culture with all of its affluence and, and, and forward movement, are able to get engaging and interesting work? This is, this is warped, and it shows how warped our, our ideas of what life should be like in the West have become in our privilege and affluence. Happiness is getting my circumstances in the right place. I'm happy as long as things are going well. But what happens when things aren't going well? Well, the world has absolutely no answer, but Christianity does. Because Christianity says you might not be able to manage your circumstances, but you can live with a joy that's not based on your circumstances. Joy in God, not circumstances. So when difficulties come, get this. You don't lose your joy. When difficulties come, you actually can get more joy because suffering is an opportunity to get more of God who is the real object of joy. So not only, according to our faith, can you maintain your joy in hard times, you can actually see your joy grow. And so before we move on, let's make this connection between joy and shame. Because Hannah's joy is joy in God. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2 as she begins to sing. My heart rejoices in the Lord. My heart exults in the Lord. I rejoice in his salvation. Isn't that interesting? She doesn't pray. My heart rejoices in Samuel. Shame is this deep, pervasive sense of and fear of wrongness that comes from being wrongly related to God. Joy is, is, isn't about a change in circumstances. It's about a change in our relationship with our maker. It's the product of righteousness. And the, and the spring of all rightness is rightness with God. So the solution to shame is a deep, pervasive sense of rightness. It is to be naked. That is, to be known all the way to the bottom. To be naked and to not be afraid of being known. To know that your love, no matter what blemishes or trouble areas, being known as you really are reveals. And it's only the love of God for us in Christ that makes that possible. So that's the last thing then. As we wrap up this morning, then where does joy, like we're talking about, come from? How does Christmas particularly help you rejoice even in hard times? And I want you to see that Hannah's joy comes from two things. It comes from, first, coming to terms with her barrenness. And then secondly, on the other side of that, coming to terms with God's grace. So coming to terms. Coming to terms with both of those things. 
Why all these stories of barren women? To teach us the lesson, I think, of our own spiritual barrenness, that just as Hannah's womb was empty of the life she so desired, so our lives are empty of the spiritual power we need. But the response to that doesn't have to be shame. The response to knowing that I do not have what I need to make my life go the way I need for it to. Excuse me. I do not have in myself what I need to get back into a right relationship with the one who has made me. I am completely without the resources that I need to make my life go. That doesn't have to be an experience of shame. What the gospel teaches is that it actually can be an experience of hope because that is the very place where God goes to work. Our spiritual barrenness is not an obstacle to God's work. It's the opportunity for God's work because he's a God of grace. So she had to come to terms with her barrenness and then come to terms with his grace. Well, what do I mean? I mean this, that God doesn't assign value and worth on the basis of performance. His love and acceptance isn't based on the rankings. It demolishes the ranking system. It turns everything upside down. And that was the theological lesson that she learned. Look at her prayer. This is, what, what causes, this is the cause of her joy. She's saying, we're just going to really quickly go through this prayer. There is none holy like the Lord, she says, verse 2. In other words, she came to know that God was God's ways are different from the world's ways, that he doesn't do things the way we do, that he is the exact opposite of us, in fact. That's what that word holy means. With God, look how she, look how she begins. She's a, she's a great theologian. She begins in, in, in the next verses. With God, the strong are weak and the weak are made strong. Look, verse 4, the bows of the mighty are broken and the feeble bind on strength. With God... The self-indulgent go without, and the spiritually hungry and thirsty are satisfied. Verse 5. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. With God, the Peninas of the world are lonely and sad, and the Hannas of the world are fruitful. Verse 5. The barren has borne seven. That's the number of perfection. But she who has many children is forlorn. She knows with God, all of the somethings are first brought to nothing, and all of the nothings are eventually made into something. Verse 8, he raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts up the needy from the ash heap to make him sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. This is the wholesale reversal of all previous arrangements. She is unveiling for us the new creation of God by the Spirit. No longer do the first finish first and the last bring up the rear. The first are now last and the last first because the ranking systems have been turned upside down. That's what grace does. Grace says it doesn't matter who you are or aren't. It doesn't matter what you can do or can't do. It doesn't matter what you do or don't. All you need is nothing. All you need is need. That's the only fitness God requires of you. As Augustine said, God gives where he finds empty hands. So let me ask you, which person gets the rightness they need? The person who thinks they have it because they've won or the one who knows they don't because they've lost? Who really produces? The strong, the powerful, the talented, or the weak and the needy and the one who's outmatched? Who can be saved? The one who comes to God with their hands full? Look at the things I've got for you, Lord. Or the one whose hands are empty? Over and over again, the scripture says this, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Salvation is by grace. It begins with an empty womb. And so let me just make three applications as we, leave, as we come to the table this morning. And if you're in a community group, this would be, these would be great things. I, I don't have time to go 
very deep into this, but these would be great things for you to talk about. But I want to make three applications. If all of that's true, if what Hannah intuits about the way the Lord works is true, here are three applications for our lives. First, God will thwart your strength. Nobody believes that. God will thwart your strength to save you. Secondly, he will show up in your weakness. Not only can God come to you in the times when you feel most barren, that's when you should expect it the most. That's the shift. That's the lesson. Tim Keller said, in general, God begins a new chapter of his power in your life at the point of your greatest hopelessness and helplessness and need. He will thwart your strength. He will show up in your weakness. And therefore, to be a person of faith means you don't run from weakness. You run to weakness because you find God there. Man, that's hard. Anybody else? You guys are making me feel like I'm all alone up here. I'm serious. I'm feeling vulnerable and condemned. So how do you do that? How does Christmas help you do that? See, I want you to see First Samuel 1 and 2 is connected to Christmas in two ways. First, when Mary sings at the news of Jesus' birth, it's basically the same song as Hannah's. Did you know that? Almost word for word, Mary just recapitulates Hannah's prayer. So what Hannah intuits God is doing in the birth of her son Samuel, Mary comes to understand its ultimate fulfillment in the birth of her son Jesus. The Christmas story is, is a profound example of the upside downness of God's kingdom, uh, which, which Hannah's prayer intuits. God breaking into the world the way he did in Jesus was part of the message of what he'd come to do. Let me say that again. God breaking into the world in the way he did at Christmas is part of the message of what he had come to do. But also, if you look down at the very end, Hannah prayed, verse 10, Lord, the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Her prayer was looking forward to a person, in other words, a king, the anointed. That word is the Messiah. In other words, all that Hannah had come to understand about the way God worked was based on the promise of a future king who would come to save, not the mighty, but the weak by becoming weak. One who would come to save... Not the rich and the powerful, but the poor, by becoming needy and becoming poor, and leaving the palatial home of his father in heaven to be born in a smelly animal stall. This one would come not to save all the good people, but all the bad people by being counted as bad with them and dying in their place as a sacrifice for sin on the cross. He would come and become nothing so that he could take all of the nothings and make something out of them. That's what the scripture means by grace. Isn't that a glorious gospel? What a glorious gospel for us to celebrate this morning. And so let's continue to do so as we come to his table now. And let's pray. So, Father, the faint reality to some of our hearts of the way that you work in the gospel of Jesus being as it is, would you come now as we gather around this meal and we see put on display before our eyes your body broken and your blood shed for us that that is the solution what what you've done what Jesus you have accomplished in your coming 
what you've accomplished on the cross for us is the solution to the, to, to the despondency and the disgrace and the shame that we feel. That you saw all the way to the bottom of us. And you did not say yuck. You saw all the way to the bottom of us, to the, to the deepest, darkest secrets that no one else even knows, to the places of greatest condemnation in our own hearts. And in love, you stepped into the world. And in love, you, you gave your own, only son, Father. And Jesus, you came to suffer and to die as the punishment for our deepest, darkest sins so that, so that our disgrace could be taken away, so that we could be like those in Zephaniah 3 who would hear your song of love and forgiveness singing, sung over our lives continually that it would be the end of our disgrace and that we would find the exultant joy of Hannah and of all of the saints throughout the ages who have come to know what it is to be right with you again. Oh, Father, would you come and make the reality of that rightness that you offer to us in the gospel of Jesus known powerfully to our hearts, that it might take our sadness and our shame it might transform it into joy, even here at the end of the service, as we celebrate this meal together and as we sing, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I hope that's your song, and I hope you sang it joyfully. <laughs> because well, the promise of the gospel is uh, that the one who knows you best, the one who does see to the very bottom of you, he does not, uh, he is the one who looked upon his son on the cross becoming our shame and turned his face away so that when he looks upon you, even the deepest, darkest, nastiest parts of you, he does not turn his face towards you. The, the, the sunshine of his loving face shines the brightest on the places in our hearts that we would think he would be most prone to turn away from. That's the promise of these words. And that is the reason why we, veiled as, as our lives are with sin and sadness, why we can sing, that is a prophetic song. Right? That we just sang. Prophetic. Joy to the world. There is a cause for joy. And one day he will come and our joy will be complete. But until then, we are those who walk in this darkness, uh, having the light of uh, the gospel shining it, uh, in us and through us. And so that is the promise of these, of these words. That the Father's face is turned towards you in love. So receive this benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go and sing that song to the world.